Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, March 26, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a little bit film news, and then we're going to dive into us spoilers. We're going to answer some of your emails and get Chris's reaction slash interpretation and uh, my my insights from a second viewing of that film. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so before we get into the Us spoiler discussion, uh, well, first of all, we were supposed to be recording the water cooler today. It was pushed from yesterday because of the Apple event, but HT is out sick. So in her honor, we're moving at to Wednesday. So I, I promise it will. the water cooler will be happening tomorrow. Uh, but let's uh, talk about the one news story before we get to the us discussion. And well, actually, it's a couple news stories coming out of this um, screenings that were happening. Zack Snyder was doing the screenings of his director's cuts of his films. And we learned more about his original vision for the DCEU. Chris, what do we know? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if this is what I would call his vision for the entire DCEU, but he basically spent this entire event, um, defending his, his various choices for, uh, Batman v Superman. Um, uh, one of those of course is the fact that Batman, uh, just straight up kills people in, in the Zack Snyder DCEU, which as we all know, is is a current big no-no. Although I will say, in Zack Snyder's defense, it hasn't always been that way. You know, the early pages of the Batman comics, Batman uh, had no problem killing people. And even in the Tim Burton movies, you know, he in like Batman Returns, he straight up straps some dynamite to some guy and blows him up. So he has killed in the past. But in recent years, he, he's adopted this, you know, no-kill rule. And of course, the Nolan movies made that uh, mo- more famous. But uh, that's not the case in Zack Snyder's world. And du- during the conversation, he had a sort of uh, vulgar tirade where um, I guess I should read the actual quote because I can't do it justice without <laughs> with summarizing it. So here, here's the wait, quote. Wait, wait, can you read the quote 
in your impression of Zack Snyder saying the quote? I don't even know what he sounds like. I've never actually like listened to him talk. Like I just have read interviews. So maybe in a Batman voice, Chris. I, uh, I don't want no because the <laughs> I'll, my regular voice sounds enough like the Batman voice. I'll just read it like that. <clears throat> Someone says to me, "Batman killed a guy." I'm like, "Fuck, really? Wake the fuck up!" I guess that's what I'm saying. Once you've lost your virginity to this fucking movie, and then you come and say to me something about, like, my superhero wouldn't do it, I'm like, are you serious? I'm, like, down the fucking road on that. Uh, that's... Whoa. <laughs> that's pro- then he continues, it's a cool point of view to be like, my heroes are still innocent. My heroes don't fucking lie to America. My heroes didn't embezzle money from their corporations. My heroes didn't fucking commit any atrocities. That's cool, but you're living in a fucking dream world. End quote. <laughs> Jacob, what do you have to say to this? <laughs> uh, you, you have to be a smart man. To lead a $200 million film production, but he sounds so stupid. He sounds like he's a 15-year-old boy. Uh, um, I love, I, I like enough of his movies to feel bad for laughing, but he sounds so stupid. Like a, and hearing it read out loud, it's just, <laughs> what an idiotic thing to say. Like, a, a, a part of me wonders if he's just like, he's so sick of talking about this, he just like snapped, but otherwise, I don't know what, what else it could be. Like, I wonder if the people in that theater, like all of them are like Zack Snyder fans, like if they were like, encouraging this, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just picture like, you know, when you see a stand up and they're like bombing and you just like you're like pulling on your collar and your face gets really red for them. Like, oh, no. Like, that's what I picture being in the audience during this tirade was like, just like, oh, boy, I he should stop. This is embarrassing. But I don't know. Maybe they were all like cheering him on for all I know. And by the way, by you saying that Batman has killed people in these movies, his Batmobile had like this huge ass like machine gun on the hood of it. Yeah, like, like I said, it's like, not... What is the purpose of that? It's not to knock down walls. Sure it is. It's so he can blow cars out of the way when he's chasing after the Joker. Don't you remember? He flips all those cars with the guns. That's yeah. all they're there for, Peter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um... and, and it's really interesting because the Batman No Kill thing came about because of all the restrictions the government put in place against comics in the 50s, you know, following all these censorship outcries. So rather than, uh, you know, just have Batman suddenly stop murdering... They built it into the character that he doesn't murder. And these days, as grim as Batman comics are these days, and they're really grim, it's such a cornerstone of the character, you know, even post-Burton, pre-Burton. So it's just, it's so strange to hear this still because it's been, you know, 60 years since Batman has not been a murderer. And Burton's the only person to ever go off that path. It's so strange to me. Well, I mean... It seems like Zack Snyder was trying to create his whole other version of the DC universe. And he also made this other quote. Uh, he made this other comment about his original plans for that Martha scene. Chris, tell us about it. I, I, I know it's, it's almost too hard to believe this. I, I need yeah. to hear it come out of your mouth. This is this is really wild. So first he, he went off a little spiel defending the, the infamous scene in Batman v Superman where Batman is seconds away from just straight up murdering Superman. And then Superman, uh, you know, asks Batman to save Martha, which is his mother 
And Batman's mother, of course, was also named Martha. You know, there's Martha Kent, that's Superman's mom, and then there's Martha Wayne, that's Batman's mom. And uh, Superman saying that makes Batman realize, like, oh, Superman has, you know, a family and blah, blah, blah. I've been wrong this whole time. That's an okay idea in theory, but the execution is really bad and we're all still laughing about it. So during this same event, uh, Zack Snyder, first he defended that and then apparently he revealed that there was originally a much crazier idea about this where it turns out that after Martha Wayne got shot in Crime Alley, which, you know, is, of course, the famous Batman origin story where his parents get gunned down, um, Batman's dad died but Martha Wayne survived and she was put in the witness protection program in Kansas at which point she became Martha Kent under assumed identity and then you know she found Superman in the field or whatever after he crashed to earth and raised him as her son so there was going to be this twist where after Superman reveals his mother is named Martha Batman learns that they're like brothers essentially they have the same mother and boy i wish he had done that because that would have been just even more crazy and i would love to see the reaction to that oh my god the outrage would have been insane there's so much wrong with this why would martha wayne leave her traumatized son alone to be raised by the butler why would why why <laughs> i mean you know to, to give zack Snyder the benefit of the doubt we don't know the whole thing because we don't have the script maybe in that this version of the story she thought her son was dead i don't know why they would put her in the police protection program and not tell her her son was alive i don't know i'm trying to be <laughs> nice it, it, to zack it, Snyder. and you wouldn't hear about bruce wayne from you yeah, know the all news, the way in kansas that's true maybe she has amnesia that's always a possibility like the <laughs> like getting shot destroyed her memory <laughs> ben you've been quiet during all this insanity like any thoughts on this i love this martha idea so much because it is so out there and i yeah i i would this is one of those things that would be a legendary moment in comic book movie history we would still be talking about this and and having huge arguments over it and uh <laughs> i kind of love the idea of like so, you know, Zack Snyder, as as uh, misguided as he can be sometimes, this reminds me a little bit of like the old um, Superman flyby concept where it's just like it changes what we know you're, of you're, these characters. You're, you're talking about the script that J.J. Abrams wrote that eventually like the big third act reveal was that Lex Luthor was also from Krypton. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, something like that would change what we know so fundamentally about these characters that uh, I would find it really, really interesting. You know, like, say what you will about it, but the way that uh, Snyder could have used this twist to play with the dynamic between Batman and Superman would have been something that we've never seen before. And and I, you know, in, in a world where we're seeing a lot of sort of literal adaptations of stuff and like sometimes we sort of feel like we know what the movie is going to be before it even comes out, something like that would have um, certainly like flipped the table on, <laughs> on what we know about Batman and Superman. So I kind of wish he would have done that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I guess, alas, it was not to be. Jacob, say what you will about the logic of this idea, but at least it would be a more reasonable moment than them bonding over the fact that their mothers are both named the same name. 
this is why you don't take a piece of comp trivia and make it into a large plot point in your $200 million movie. It's bad from the outset. Nothing here works, and all of it just makes me very sad. Okay, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, if you have not seen Jordan Peele's Us, go see it. I think we can all agree it's something that you should see in the theater. We recorded an episode on Friday, a spoiler discussion, where uh, Jacob and Ben and Brad all outlined their interpretations of the movie. Um, you, go listen to that. It's a, I think it's one of the, our best episodes. But someone who was not on that podcast. Oh, so if you're still listening and you haven't seen us, this is your fault. You've been warned. There's massive spoilers coming up. Uh, but that said... Someone who wasn't on that podcast was Chris. Chris had not seen the movie at that point. Chris, you have now seen the movie. What did you think? Uh, I loved it. I love us. Um, seeing us felt like, you know, a confirmation of like everything uh, everyone said about Jordan Peele as a filmmaker. Like, you know, after after Get Out came out and it was so fantastic. And there was this sense like, oh, how's he going to follow this up? And this is like proof that he really is this really fresh exciting voice in horror like even though he doesn't have the same style as john carpenter at all like watching this it was like oh this is like the new john carpenter this is someone who's going to specialize in horror and take things that are familiar with it but also work their own sort of uh you know uh, deep inner personal stuff into it. And it, that's so exciting, especially in, in the horror world, because there are so many horror filmmakers who are just, you know, they're, they're in it for a cheap scare. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I have fun watching, you know, horror movies that are, you know, just cheap scare movies. But anytime a horror movie comes along, that's like really trying to do more. It's trying to, you know, have layers and trying to be deeper and trying to, you know, go beyond just jump scares. I get so, so excited because it's so rare. And I, I really hope he sticks with the genre. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll happily watch whatever he does next, but I hope he stays in the horror genre for a little bit more because it, it, you know, it, it could really use his voice. So I'm really curious. I'm sure you've probably heard by now Jacob and Ben's interpretations of the ending of this film and what the, what everything represents. I'm, I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on it. You know, this is one of those things where I don't think there's any one correct interpretation. And it's uh, this is one of those things where I almost feel unqualified to even take a guess without seeing it like two no, or three it, it, it's through the eyes of the beholder like this is i think that's what jordan peele wants is he wants people to get out of it what they will do you know what i mean right i mean you know th what i love about this movie is there's there's two ways to look at it one is there's this like almost spielbergian approach where it's very entertaining you know it's funny and there's these big set pieces and it's it's very easy for uh, quote unquote, general audiences to just, you know, watch and consume and walk out of the theater and never think about again. But at the same time, there's this whole uh, extra layer underneath where, you know, there's the there's a cerebral angle and there's a, a metaphorical angle, you know, where people are are literally fighting with themselves. And, uh, you know, th th this whole, you know, it, it seems like really on the nose, but, you know, us is U.S. And it's this whole commentary on uh, where America is right now in this country. And uh, people, you know, just 
people living their people who think they're living their best possible lives, but they're really not. They're they're in this sort of like you know the shadow of themselves that that isn't you know we aren't who we really think we are, but at the same time where we are, you know, to, to, there's this quote from Kurt Vonnegut that um, he says, you know, we are who we, who we pretend to be. So we should be careful who we pretend to be. And I thought of that, uh, that very last scene where, you know, she realizes that she was, that we feel Nyong'o's character realized that she was actually the, the, the person from the, she was the tethered from the basement. It's, it's, there's just so much going on and you could look at it as like, Oh, it's a neat twist, but you could also look at it as this thing that casts the entire movie in this whole other light. And what I love about that twist is if you think about it, it it's not cheap. It's not just tacked on. If you go back and look at how, Lupita Nyong'o's character reacts to the tethered when they show up. She has this almost sympathy for them that the other characters do not. Like there's that part where she stops the car and she, she reaches out to uh, the other version of her son. Like she's trying to reason with him where you, you would, you know, the other characters wouldn't be doing that. And at the same time, there's also, we get this, this glimpse of this savagery of her character too. Like when she's defending people, she, you know, kind of goes nuts. And these are all these really subtle hints that Jordan Peele is dropping to, to, to bring about that, that whopper of a twist at the end. Yeah. Well said. Um, I saw the film for a second time. I went to saw see it with Kitra in a you know uh, normal theater with the uh, general audience, uh, not like my you know uh, press screening. And I, I took a bunch of notes that I wanted to relay these notes to you guys and see if you had any thoughts on this. First of all, in that flashback in the beginning, Lupita's dad is playing whack a mole, a game about hitting underground creatures and keeping them underground. Um, he's uh, strangely only hitting one hole. I'm not sure if that like what the choice is there. Like, th- does that say anything, Jacob? That like he's not going after all the moles. He's just going after one hole. I'm not so sure if I'd read too much into the one hole thing, but I it the whole whack and mole connection is something that flew over my head for sure, and that's just some really clever foreshadowing. So I I really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, his uh, her daughter Zora is wearing this green hoodie that says the word T H O. I don't know how you pronounce that, but apparently it's a Vietnamese word that means rabbit. So, um, I mean, rabbits are all over her and her kids' lives. Like she has that stuffed animal, and so I mean, I don't think there's and it, that's just kind of foreshadowing. I think I wanted to ask you guys there in that opening sequence. She is eating a uh, candy apple on a stick, right? And she finds that fun house and, uh, you know, starts raining and she drops the candy apple. Am I reading too much into this that there there might be something about the Garden, e- Garden of Eden here with the apple? I don't think there are any accidents here. The idea that she's eating an apple right before she has the true knowledge of what America is literally dropped on her. It feels very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm trying to understand more about the underground. We see the in that last fight in the underground, there is a classroom with desks and a chalkboard, and there's like bloody handprints underneath the chalkboard. What what is this classroom used for? Anybody have any ideas? Uh, my guess, and please jump in, anybody at any time, uh, is that this is where the former researchers conducting tests were maybe trying to train all the tethered how to be human, how to 
maybe replace people above them or better replicate them. And when it was abandoned, all they had left was a bunch of empty classrooms, which, you know, maybe here's a further further commentary there worth talking about, you know, uh, classrooms not being used. That's also <laughs> loaded imagery. Yeah, Chris, I'm curious, what did you make of the um, the difference between uh, the above ground and the, the below ground areas? Did you uh, were you caught up at all in the like the the literalisms and the 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 reality of that story underneath? Like, did you have any questions about how that world worked? I so well, I, I like I actually love how vague it is. And I think the only thing I actually didn't like in the movie is when he stops like the whole thing to have, uh, you know, the, the tethered version of Lupita Nyong'o, I guess it's actually the real version, you know, give that whole story about who they are and where they came from. Like, I honestly wish that wasn't in it at all. I would rather there was like literally no attempt at explanation because I think that's more exciting to me. That's, that's more, strange that's more surreal that's more uh, see i agree you know. with you i feel like giving the explanation opens up those those like you know quote-unquote pothole questions that people have like the, like without that conversation it leaves things just way more open to interpretation right and at the same time you could also say like who's to say that story that character is telling is even true like there's nothing yeah. to back that up we just have her word for it and as is clear, she's been driven kind of insane from living underground for so many years. So, you know, there's no there's no telling that that story she's telling is even true, which would actually be an easy way to say, like, you know, sure, this doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to because, you know, yeah. why are we taking this woman's word for it anyway? Yeah. Um, some other things I noticed. Uh, the Funhouse, which, by the way, the, the subtitle of the Funhouse is Find Yourself, which I think is kind of funny. Um, the... The big storm, uh, you know, causes her to go into the funhouse and the power goes out. And this is something I didn't notice in my first viewing of this film. The power goes out, which causes the escalator to stop, which is allows the tethered. Who would that be? Adelaide or Red to come up? The... Uh, I had to keep it clean. We'll just call the uh, version who ends up above ground Adelaide and the version who ends up below ground red just to keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. So it, that, that allows Adelaide to escape and not have to just, you know, run up and uh, the wrong way of an escalator, which I it was something I didn't even think about the first feeling. Um, you know, we talked about 1111 that's on that Jeremiah 1111 sign. Uh, I think we, uh, Jacob, you mentioned it was on a clock. My second viewing, I, I noticed that there was a lot more 11-11s in the movie. Like, they were watching a baseball game on TV, and it was tied 11-11. The, uh, she wins a... Th- uh, her dad wins her a Thriller t-shirt, and that is prize number 11. And uh, the last shot of the movie shows this ambulance going into the, you know, mountains, and on the top of the ambulance is the number 11-11. So that is definitely something J- uh, Jordan Peele has put all over the movie. Yeah, and somebody in the reader email has a really fascinating observation about 11.11. I can't wait for us to get into that. Uh, would you like to read that one right now? Oh, you want to jump ahead? Yeah, let's jump ahead, oh, yeah. and then we'll go yeah, back sure. to my notes. Uh, this is uh, Stephen K. Uh, writing in directly to respond to uh, Ben's reading of this scene, uh, where he re- re- quoted a Bible verse. And he uh, wants to add a little bit more uh, context to the Bible verse. He says, you need context to understand the Jeremiah verse. 
We've abandoned progress and reverted back to the sins of our forefathers. Capitalism is becoming feudalism, and justice is swinging back towards the early 20th century. My take, Trump is a symptom, not the subject. And of course, the Bible verse was about chaos and the great punishment coming, and the idea of the Jeremiah verse be, uh, initially being about you know Old Testament God rearing up to strike down on society for abandoning his ways, whereas this is a movie where uh, taking place in America that is sliding away from democracy when a great tragedy and chaos strikes it, it really feeds into Ben's reading of the film in a way that I found incredibly chilling and a very astute observation from Steven here. Yeah, that was nice, too, because it got me to go back and read even more of the Jeremiah section of the Bible, because I, I just read, like, the immediate verses, sort of book ending 11-11, uh, and I went back and, and looked a little bit uh, further back, and um, I guess it's Jeremiah 11-6. Uh, it's talking about how uh, the Lord is telling somebody, listen to the terms of this covenant and follow them. From the time I brought your ancestors up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And I thought that that actually sort of read into or, or sort of uh, played into Jacob's read a little bit as well with like the, you know, the idea of... Um, of the tethered representing uh, Americans who just sort of turn a blind eye to a lot of this stuff, uh, a lot of these issues and, and, you know, following j just putting your head down and not listening and paying attention when the answer is presented to you. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot going on with this movie. So I feel like, yeah, there's a ton to be read into pretty much every aspect of it. And by the way, rewatching this movie with both of your interpretations in my head, I did notice a couple things like there is the whole argument. The family is having the argument over, you know, who had the highest kill count in the family, which to me seems like the most American argument ever. Um, going to to uh, Ben's point. Yeah, uh, and that, that really like I think that's the one of the biggest thing that that ties into what Brad was talking about on Friday's episode where, you know, you're getting caught up in these little details that don't matter when there's a much bigger problem you know, right there on the surface for, for everybody to deal with. But uh, it's these distractions that that ultimately can be our undoing. Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw something out there in, that, that ties into the whole uh, America and forgotten American past thing, because I, I actually haven't seen a lot of people point this out. I don't know if they didn't catch it or not or what, but at the beginning, when she goes into the funhouse, it has this like Native American theme. I think it's called like Vision Quest. And there's like this caricature of a, a native american outside but then when she comes back in the present it's been turned into like merlin's far it's like this fantasy thing and i think that ties into the the whole uh, push you know american angle too where it's like you know just burying this thing for the past and turning it into something not like not, not even real like you know wizards and uh, magical forests and stuff like that hmm. i did not notice that that's a good, good catch um Another thing I wanted, I, I noticed was when they were at their friend's house and Adelaide was arguing that they should leave to Mexico, the husband, her husband insists that they, they're in the safest pl place on the planet or something like that, which also seems to me going towards Ben's kind of interpretation of this whole thing. It seems like a very American uh, thing to say. Um, one other thing I noticed, I mean, I did notice this the first time around, but I, I don't think I took any meaning into this but the opening of the text of the film where it's talking about the underground tunnels um it ends with a line that says like many have no known purpose 
and then the rest of the text disappears, leaving just that one line. And I think if you read that one line, that 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 also is something you know, obviously that speaks on different levels to the the themes of this film, which I thought was kind of interesting because you know, obviously it's not just talking about the tunnels. Um, and the idea if that's how people view a certain segment of society having no purpose, not being useful to the machine of America, not being a, a player, something to be ground up and used. It, yeah. It's really chilling when you actually take it in that context. Yeah. Um, one other thing I did notice the second time around, actually, no, I didn't notice this. One of my friends pointed this out, uh, pointed out that red is the only one of the tethered who can talk. And that's kind of cool because that's a very good clue into the twist of this film. And even Adelaide tells Elizabeth Moss's character on the beach that, quote, I'm not good at talking. Um, so, I mean, it's just like little hints, but I think that's kind of fun. Um, the uh, oh, the other Chris, I'm sure you noticed this one. This one was kind of like a, a horror Easter egg. But the dad mentions on the Santa Cruz boardwalk that a movie is being filmed nearby and like tells her to like maybe she could be an extra. And this scene is being is taking place in 1986, and at the time, The Lost Boys was being filmed on Santa Cruz Boardwalk. Yes, I did. I did actually catch that, and yeah. I thought that was that was fun. Yeah. Um, one other thing I didn't notice first time around is I did. I was aware that the tethered all wear those gloves, but I wasn't aware that they were wearing the gloves on their right hand, just like Michael Jackson. Just you know, the the person who was on the shirt that, um, red, I guess one yeah yeah uh, red, it, yeah they're all wearing red jumpsuits like michael jackson famously did in many of his yeah that's appearances true. that is wow but, <laughs> i did not figure that out but um uh, one last thing uh adelaide's smile at the end of the movie where she looks over to her son who's sitting in the passenger seat and she smiles chris i think you mentioned just a few minutes ago that that was her realization or it, it, i've heard many people say that that's her realizing and I'm wondering, what do you guys think? Like, is that her realizing or is that what does that smile mean? I mean, it has to be her realizing just by the nature of film editing. I mean, <laughs> the way Jordan Peele cuts it is that, you know, it's her face and then it cuts to the flashback and then it cuts back yeah. to her. And if, you know, if it wasn't supposed to be that, then it would imply Jordan Peele doesn't understand editing. And I don't think that's true. So I do think it's her realizing whether or not. That means she's just like suddenly, uh, you know, evil now. I don't think it's it's implying that. I think it's more like she's just realizing who she really is and just, you know, being okay with it now because she, in the end, she won. You know, she still got away with it. I, I disagree with Chris here. I, I, I feel that smile is definitely a, a victorious smile. It's her realizing that she's gotten away with it. Uh, but it's it's also her getting away with it having known the entire time. I mean, she she she's not good at talking. We see her going through therapy, learning how to talk again and how to learn how to essentially be a fully functioning above ground human. And if you go back and, and rewatch all the scenes earlier in the movie, like, um, of course, I've only seen the movie once. So please correct me, Peter. Uh, the scenes play out in a way that make total sense for her to have known everything. Of course, she's going to keep her secret. But the scenes between Adelaide and Red play very much like a a woman uh, who's extremely guilty and, and afraid that her guilt is caught up with her as opposed to a woman who's just terrified. And Red's actions are very much that of a woman scorned out for revenge. So I really feel like the final reveal isn't just a twist on the face of, oh, she's been tethered this whole time, 
with the reveal that everything we've seen her do, her terror was not born out of just being, you know, randomly assaulted, but terror out of knowing that her past is caught up with her. This is really interesting because I find it, I, I land right in between both of you. I feel like she had like a subconscious knowledge. Right. That's where really I mean, she, met, she does mention early in the film that she remembers this encounter with an, someone that looked like her in that funhouse. So she at least remembers that moment. See, I I read it. I read the whole movie, and Jacob's uh, idea is now very intriguing to me. But I, I read it as, you know, it was like an, a repressed memory. You know, mm. it's clear she's been through therapy because we see her at, at a therapist's office, and there's the whole, you know, learning to dance thing. And you know, I, I always took it as to be like a therapist or someone along that line convinced her that you know these thoughts were delusions or things that were just in her head and she sort of repressed them over time and this huge traumatic experience through the movie triggers the real memory and that at the very end she's finally realizes what she's been repressing the whole time that's how i interpreted it yeah uh jacob's idea certainly is um interesting and now i i want to go back and rewatch it even more i've also seen some people read this moment as the sun realizing that the, there's a, you know the mother has is not who she is or you know what she seems i've i've seen someone actually suggest that the son is one of the tethered two which i don't buy but how would I've that seen, even work well they point out the fact that you know the the te- the one we think is the tethered version half his mouth is burned off so that would explain why he can't talk but again i don't know how that would even make sense you know like so i don't know the only thing I think of is there's that one scene where the sun goes off and he spots the the homeless guy on the beach and then it cuts away. But and then the the he comes back, he comes running back, but we don't see what happened to him in between the moment he sees that homeless guy on the beach. And like maybe that was oh. the point. But then I don't know like when he would get his mouth burnt. Like he would have to have it really quick because it seems like it's in the span of like a like the same day so i don't know i don't think that makes much sense but i have seen people suggest that yeah i don't, I don't buy that at all but i do think that this ties into something that ben suggested which is that if rabbits uh are symbols for ideas and the sun is you know literally exiting the film carrying a rabbit aka a new idea he that could the idea represent him having the newfound knowledge of what his mother is hmm you know, we have a lot more questions on the docket here. We've already we're already thirty three minutes in, so you know, I'm gonna make the executive decision here. We're gonna get to one more question. We're gonna get to one more email from the the mailbag, and we'll hold these. And hopefully, you know, HT can join us next time and tell her, you know, talk about some of her interpretations of this movie. Um, not not to drag out us into a three episode. Uh, you know, let's series, do it. But, this movie deserves yeah. it. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kevin writes in that the frisbee, uh, you know, the frisbee lands on the the what is that blanket or towel, and it lands mm-hmm. perfectly on the towel. He he argues that the frisbee represents tethered Ad- Adelaide, uh, taking original Adelaide's place and living with the original. Hence, the red frisbee, tethered Adelaide is covering the blue circle, original Adelaide, and being surrounded by other blue circles with her pretending to fit in. Her <laughs> removing the frisbee is her uh, 
her denying who she is and that she should belong above. What do you guys think of that interpretation? Is this too much of a read? Like, this is one of the few things in the movie that I'm not sure how it connects to everything. Like, I know one of the characters mentions, like, uh, moments of coincidence. That's yeah, her character. Lupita yeah. Nyong'o's character is the one who says, you know, since we've been up here, I've been noticing more and more coincidences. And that gave me a little pause when I think back on it, too, because other than that Frisbee thing, I can't really. And, you know, the 11-11, I can't think of any other coincidences she's talking about. So that was one thing I really didn't quite get. Uh, there's a really amazing video that Vanny Fair made when Get Out was in theaters where it was they gave Jordan Peele a list of fan theories from Reddit discussing moments from Get Out. And some of them he shot down saying, nope, that's not true. Some of them he openly encouraged saying, yep, this was totally intentional. And the other ones where he jokingly said, oh, yeah, I totally thought of that. That was totally intentional. Yep. Even though he's clearly, <laughs> clearly had not thought about it. I'm wondering if this Frisbee moment is one of those. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, th- th- there's some intense stuff that we, we have gotten in our email, um, and we will get to it. But There's, I, there's, there's one final thing I want to bring up just because I want to see what you guys think because okay. I wasn't on the last podcast. So one thing I thought was really interesting is this movie and the movie Climax begin in the same exact way where there's a shot of a TV and the TV is surrounded by these VHS tapes. And the VHS tapes are movies that clearly influenced the movie we're about to see. Like for instance, climax, you can see uh, the movie possession, which is a huge influence on that. And this movie, uh, it has the same thing. I, like I spotted like Chud there and Chud is a movie about, you know, creatures living underground. And I'm just wondering if any of you picked up on those other tapes. The only one, other one I noticed was the right stuff. And I don't know how that fits in. Cause that's a movie about, you know, the space <laughs> program. I think I think it was, they all wear jumpsuits. So I don't know what, what else that's doing there, but I'm wondering if anyone else picked up on that and what the other titles were. I yeah. do notice the, the, the same openings here because literally Chris is right. The, both these movies open with extended close-ups of a TV show on my VHS tapes, and the right stuff clicked to me as the most American movie imaginable. The one that's all about how Americans, when we when we work together, can achieve the impossible. Right next to the movie about cannibalistic human underground dwellers. So and, and it's just a really great contrast. There were a couple others too. There was the Goonies. Um, I mean, and I guess you know, there's a line in there uh, in the speech, but. Um, that's it's our time now our time up there um that i think is kind of relevant in that um there was the man with two brains that's like a steve martin comedy i don't really i've never seen that so i'm not sure i guess because there's two of them i don't know i want i really want to see this again and like take notes on like every single scene like i wish this were on blu-ray just so i could like pause it and stuff the the other one that's on there is a nightmare on elm street so that's what like feels love and there's so much craven influence west craven is all over this movie and so i I just make sense as a tonal influence yeah but i want to hear more of your email so if you have some interesting theories or notice something that we did not send them to us at peter at slash film.com that's peter at slash film.com and we hopefully will get all get to all these emails you know when there's a slow news day and we can you know 
geek out more about us spoilers uh we really enjoyed this movie hopefully you guys are enjoying us talking about it you can uh, find uh you know we'll link to that jordan peele video the one that you mentioned jacob uh from vanity fair uh in the show notes you can find that there and you can find the new stories we talked about earlier in this podcast also in the show notes this podcast slash film daily is published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps, please uh, head on over to our iTunes page, uh, write us a review, uh, you know, re- uh, rate us favorably, uh, tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you tomorrow.